Hi, I'm Brett Serpstra, and this is Systematic on 5x5. Bandwidth for April has been provided by Cashfly, the fastest, most reliable CDN in the business. Cashfly delivers all of our content here at 5x5, and they really are the best. Check them out at cashfly.com, C-A-C-H-E-Fly, and let let them know you heard about them on 5x5. My guest this week is Ryan Ireland. He is the Vice President of Technology at Happy Cog, and he runs uh, Majingo.com and teaches tech to people in all walks of the tech industry. How's it going, Ryan? Doing good. Hello, Brett. Why don't you tell me a little bit about, let's start with just a a little bit about Happy Cog. What's it like? Tell people what Happy Cog is, and then I want to know what it's like to work there. Sure. Uh, Happy Cog is a web design and development agency founded by Jeffrey Zeldman. Um, And... uh, we do all sorts of projects uh, from things like we just uh, worked with Ben and Jerry's and uh, helped them with their redesign uh, at benandjerry's.com. And we do everything from, you know, uh, you know user experience design, uh, graphic design, web development, custom web applications. And uh, we have offices in Austin, Texas and Philadelphia. And then our founder, Jeffrey, has... Uh, what he calls a space apart, his office in uh, in New York City. Nice. And so, yeah, it's uh, I've been working um, sort of in the Happy Cog uh, family for almost eight years. Um, I'm from. I originally started working for a company called Airbag uh, Industries, uh, which was founded by Greg Story, and we became part of Happy Cog four years ago or something like that, and. Uh, um, and it's great. Uh, you know, we get to work with some really uh, fun companies and and cool brands. Um, you know, I mean, I I walk like by the in the office and I see people have like, you know, Ben and Jerry's like comps like on their computer, <laughs> and you're just like salivating, you know. And someone would be like, "We need to go get some ice cream." And uh, so in our freezer here at the office, there's you know like I don't know a half dozen pints of of Ben and Jerry's that we have for you know when people are hungry. I think someone even went and got some ice cream cones to go with it. Um, so uh, it's a lot of fun. We, it's you know, it's because it's client services work. The, the projects change, so we're not always working on the same thing, like the same application or the same product. And um, I get to work with some really talented people, real some really talented people that were once here but have um, gone on to other phases of their careers. Um, we mentioned Ethan Marcotte earlier when, in the pre-show. Um, I got to work with him at Airbag for for several years, and uh, Mr. Responsive Design. Right. Well, he's kind of he was a, a pivotal character in everything that is web design today. Yeah, yeah. Ethan, um, Ethan is one talented fool, and uh, he would he would he would tell me to be quiet if I if he heard me say that. But he uh, he is a really talented guy, um, and also one of the most uh, one of the most thoughtful people. That I've worked with too, so he's uh, he's a, he's a good dude. I guess that's what that's what intrigues me about uh, your kind of day job is you work with some of the most talented people in the industry, and you know, and they may come and go, but overall, the the collective uh, creative power at Happy Cog is kind of mind boggling and. Working in that environment, I think I would start to take it for granted after a while. <laughs> but from the outside, it just seems like uh, some kind of mecca. 
Yeah, it's um, it's really, you know, it's really inspiring sometimes to see like what people do, especially for like stuff that I don't personally like design. Like I'll, I'll look at, you know, something somebody designed and it's just, you know, it's like that looks like, you know, that's amazing. And I, I, I can't even begin to understand like how you how you did that. Um, and I'm sure like designers might think the same thing about some development stuff as well. One of the things we've been doing is trying to to blur the lines a little bit. So we are doing a lot of um, HTML wireframing um, and a lot of, and it's some, it's not really designing in the browser, but it's sort of, I mean, that's kind of what HTML wireframing is. You're, you're getting, you're approaching some design decisions, you know, in code in the browser uh, and it's, it's, it's making designers and developers work together. Yeah. Um, well, I, I've always prided, pr- yeah, prided myself on being able to speak both languages, like yeah. design and code. And I, I found in just about every job I've had that that has really, you know, like the more, more companies try to segment into you're a designer, you're a backend developer, you're a front end developer the less gets done and right. and the less uh, creativity goes into things. And it just becomes, well, the designer said I had to do this and everyone has an excuse for why it doesn't work in the end. Yeah, well, it's that whole like, you know, sort of throwing things over the wall mentality, which is like, you know, like a design would throw it over to the, develop- right. the front end developer over the wall and then and then they would have it and then they would, you know, there wouldn't be a lot of context about like why these design decisions were made because you know there's this big wall between them and they have no idea what happened during the design you know process yeah and so we've tried to to um, to eliminate that as as much as we can so there's a conversation that's always happening we you know are making sure that people are collaborating much earlier in the process um, like if we do like a kickoff meeting like typically all of our clients there'll be an on-site kickoff at the client uh, office and. It won't be just, you know, like uh, a product. It'll be a project manager, of course, and designers and and uh, whatever developers make sense to have there, typically ones that'll, that will be working on the project. So everybody is involved and understands like the big picture of what we're trying to achieve for the client. Uh, it's not just something that, you know, designers are worried about. It's something that developers are worried about too, because, you know, when it comes to the development part of the project, they need to understand why these decisions were being made. They need to understand, you know, uh, the goals of the project. Um, if they have to make a decision on the fly, like how to implement something, if they know the goals of the project, um, they know the the intent you right. know, behind and, that and decision. And you know, you know what rules you can feasibly right. break. Exactly, yeah. Which is and so extremely important. Yeah. And so we don't really have like a... Um, we, in the past, we were more like a waterfall process, um, we're definitely not like capital A agile, which is sort of the the agile that has been sold to a lot of people <laughs> through through books and and um, and training and all sorts of stuff. Um, we're a little bit more like small A agile in the sense that we uh, we work you know with each other um, and we are always um, while we do set up in the beginning of a project like what the project requirements are. We understand that those requirements may need to change as more things are uncovered, and uh, we work with the clients, you know, to make sure that we can all, you know, achieve those requirements, keeping things like timeline and budgets in mind. So it's the uh, it's the Bruce Lee Agile. 
Yeah, exactly. Like, like water. Yeah, yeah, mind like water, right? Yes. Um, uh, but it's, I, I'm always so hesitant and people here are typically hesitant of saying agile because there's so much baggage that comes with that word. Hey, absolutely. Um, you know, we don't, we don't do like... Do you do stand-ups? Uh, we don't. We have a, a morning status meeting um, across the whole company. And, um, but it's not like, it's not actually really project related. It's team related. Um, we have the, the companies divided into teams and, uh, we, you know, uh, and that way they can, you know, people are, are working on projects as teams. Um, so it's more wait, like, so in your status meetings, you don't have to listen to what every other team is doing. No, because one That's day awesome. a week, one day a week, a team is, is going to give like just a, a, a five minute status of what's going on with them that week. Oh, I like that. Yeah, and we um, we got these really cool video conferencing um, cameras um, that do like they like move and zoom and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called a life size. It's like this, you know, a lot of companies have them in their you know boardrooms and stuff like that. Um, and that way, every day, Philadelphia and Austin are on a, a live uh, big screen video chat, and we can kind of zoom in on either side and and zoom in on the person talking. Um, and they have in Philly, they have a, there's about 20 people or so there and they have a big, like 90 inch TV in the, one of the common areas with a farm table where they all sit. And we sit in our main conference room here with a 60 inch and we, we basically have like this live meeting every day between the offices. That I can understand being very useful. Yeah. Like in remote situations. You just want to see people. Right. Like just personality wise, it's so hard to. Uh, to interpret what people are saying without facial expressions. And once, oh, you're, yeah, once yeah. you're working together and you get comfortable enough that you can crack jokes, right. it's really hard to interpret some jokes without seeing someone, you know, smile or roll their eyes or yeah. squint, whatever. And this is why, this is why I shake my head at the emoticon haters, because I think that they're helpful for, oh, absolutely. for, for sort of letting people know like what your, what your intent is. It's fundamental. Whatever comment. When you have to trim down to 140 characters, Right. You don't have time to uh, eloquently state things like sarcasm. Right. So putting a winky at the end, it, it's I couldn't use Twitter without uh, either emoticons or terribly offending somebody like daily. <laughs> That's bound to happen anyway. It is, but um, but a smiley face goes a long way. Yeah, no, it's good to, to hear everybody um, talk and see people every day. And we're all then basically after that, everything else, all the other communications are in Basecamp for project stuff. And then ongoing sort of a running log of chats and stuff happen uh, in Slack is our tool, which is a pretty crazy tool. It's one of the few that um, I have personally seen rolled out that have been like immediately embraced by like everybody at once. Do you think it'll be around like, I mean, like base uh, uh, 37 signals? has pulled it off for probably the longest as far as just being a mainstay. Yeah. And Slack has definitely, definitely come up fast, but they tend to these like uh, communication productivity tools. They tend to be replaced pretty quickly with new and shiny. Do you feel like Slack is in it for the long haul? I think they are. Um, I mean, they're charging, I mean, just like 37 signals, they're charging real money for the service from the beginning. Um, so, I mean, and there is a free plan, but it's very limited. If you have any type of volume of, of 
conversations, right. you will very quickly see that you can't even retrieve more than a day back in your archive. But it's enough to get you excited about the tools. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Slack is just, it's just great. Um, it's, uh, it's a really cool tool. And I, I used Campfire for years and uh, still like it, but Slack just has the, the integration across devices. It's the same reason I, I went to Evernote for a lot of stuff is because I just got, I, I just needed to have like this stuff available anywhere at any time. It is these and, days. It's a huge factor. Yeah, it is. Cross platform availability. And it'll make me use a terrible rich text editor, which <laughs> says a lot. Um, that's, I was going to, Oh, have you seen? Well, I guess I won't even go into it because we don't want to talk about chat tools all day. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I do like that Slack has that Slack bot thing. Yeah, uh, yeah. That's well, one of the things I off. loved about HipChat was, <laughs> yeah. Well, there are there are practical uses for it. <laughs> well, there's a ways of getting abused pretty. Oh, absolutely, though. absolutely. But that also can add humor to the uh, the day job. Yeah, we used one in. Um, I deployed one out. For campfire, I think it was like, um, was it Hubot or something like yeah, that? Yeah, the node, the node uh, coffee. Yeah, script. I just deployed it. I just like on a free um, Heroku instance. I just deployed it out um, yeah. when we were using campfire, and it was fun. A little more maintenance than you know. Slack kind of takes all this stuff and puts a nice shiny uh, layer over it, so it's really easy to use. I, someone wrote a plugin uh, in my last job where you could tell it that you were taking a break or going to lunch or whatever. And then if anyone queried it while you were out, it would tell them, you know, left at this time to do this, be back in 20 minutes. That's cool. Yeah, it's handy. That's very um, cool. So is, is, is a lot of this stuff you're talking about right now covered in the Happy Cog way? Um, uh, the Happy Cog way, the, the series on Majingo, that, um, that covers like some fundamental courses on web design and development. So we have like okay. HTML5, CSS3, um, prototyping, responsive web design. I just got to the description. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it covers like some basically the Happy Cog folks, uh, teaching some fundamentals on, on web design and development. Um, awesome. I did one on, uh, deployments. Um, we have, uh, you know, all sorts of, of, of good stuff, responsive design and, um, the typography one is that it was always fascinating to me. I was, you were talking about like, you know, working and seeing other people do their work in a discipline that you're, you're not, you know, like really well versed in or good at. And to see somebody like break down to typography just blows my mind. Um, there's one about grids, which also, you know, like that grid stuff, like, you know, goes back, you know, centuries. Right. And, um, so that's the kind of stuff that, you know, just, uh, I just, it just blows my mind that there's, that there's so much behind it. Cause like the development stuff is, it's relatively new, right? I mean, there wasn't a lot of this going on, um, you know, a few decades ago. Right. Um, and even like a decade ago, a lot of tools we used didn't even exist. Yeah. And I think, I think there's a very certain personality type that is blown away by those things because if any person in any industry does their job correctly, 90% of the population won't notice it. They'll just exactly. use it, they'll buy it, and they'll accept it. It's this remaining 10% that are primarily the content creator section of the population that are fascinated by what other people are doing in all walks. And I think, I, I think Majingo.com, where, uh, where you do tutorials and a lot of video courses, um, I think that demonstrates that you have this 
this kind of fascination? Yeah, I'm, I've always been really curious about like people's jobs and and like why they do what they do and how they do what they do. Um, and I'm super fascinated with some stuff that nobody knows about, like stuff that kind of makes, uh, you know, it's kind of a trope, but kind of makes the world go round, but that you don't really think about, but that that's like somebody's uh, Freemasonry, right? (laughs) You know, I was telling my wife the other day that I wanted to, um, I wanted to, I wanted to join. Uh, And then, and then I got into a rabbit hole of like how you join. (laughs) Um, uh, we went to see a play at the um, Scottish Rite Theater, which is the um, a theater attached to a, a, a Mason lodge. Yeah, the Masonic Temple. We have yeah, here in here in Austin, um, and and I was like, hmm, how do you join this? Because that seems like a really nice way to meet people from all walks of life. Yeah. and that's what and that's the stuff that like you know, as I approach forty, I start to think about you know, I need to like be exposed to even more than just like the web stuff. Um, it gets, you know, it gets like redundant after a while, um, but the, I've always been, I think the Masons have to kill you if you want to leave though. Yeah. So it's well, kind of a lifetime I mean, decision. Yeah. Uh, I'm fine with that. You know, um, I'll stick around, you know, it's, <laughs> it's not that big of a deal. Uh, but I, that's the kind of stuff that really interests me. I've always been fascinated by it. Um, there's a, a story I always tell about a, uh, a family that, uh, a family that is friends with my wife's family. My, my wife is from Germany. So she lived there until we got married when she was 22. And they had friends that um, fled Germany during World War II and ended up settling in Southern California in, in Los Angeles area. And they um, basically came with nothing. And over the years, they founded a company that that made nails, you know, like the, the nails. Nail nails? Yeah. Yeah, they made nails. Hmm. And they basically built like a a family business that was then, you know, worth, you know, did very well and worth a lot of money and sort of, you know, um, I don't know what happened to it if it got sold or, or transferred on to, to, to the sons and daughters of, of the people. But um, this is my making nail story, which is that there are people out there that are sort of fundamentally changing their lives, doing things that we would probably not even consider or think of that are very mundane, but that there's like a lot of, if you dive deep enough to anything, there's like a ton of interest and a ton of like fascinating detail about even like nails. Like you think about like, you know, manufacturing and thinking about like, you know, tolerances and thinking about, you know, um, you know, like all the machinery you need to do this. And then, you know, the sales pipeline. And there's like all this cool stuff that goes along with some of the mon- most mundane things to us. You know, it's like a bin of nails at Home Depot that we don't even think about. Right. Did you ever watch the uh, How Things Work shows yeah. and the yeah, yeah. How, How It's Made show? Yeah. Yep, I have. That's- yeah. Like I think most of the world would change the channel because those get really into detail about things like boxes of nails. Yeah. But like factory processes have always fascinated me. Yeah. Like, you know, like, oh, wow, this thing does, all this thing has to do is flip this one thing. That's its only job, this machine. Do you ever find yourself doing, like, efficiency analysis on factories? <laughs> no, oh, I do yeah. efficiency analysis on a lot of things, but not factories. I look at a factory, and the the things that work really well, I'm fascinated by. The things that, like, I'll immediately see something that, not knowing the industry well, I'll, right. I'll think, you know, it seems like you could do that more efficiently, 
And then I'll start making mental notes that never get uh, spoken to anyone because, <laughs> again, I don't know the industries. Right. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's, uh, that, that kind of fascination is, I think makes life a lot more interesting. I think everyone should make an attempt at some point to learn the, the story behind everyday mundane items. And I had this idea just now, if I made nails, I would totally use a crucifix as my marketing campaign. Oh my gosh. <laughs> that would probably offend somebody, wouldn't it? You're going to get some email about that. Yeah, you just wait. <laughs> um, I'll forward wait. I'll forward them to you. <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, so I have like the same, I, I like to pick apart like um, one of the things I teach at Majingo are like, uh, I teach expression engine content management system and then the craft content management system. And I like to take something that I build things with and then kind of break it down and think about how to teach somebody this thing. Um, and it's the same type of curiosity of like, you know, okay, what are the things that I do to get to this end goal? And then I kind of break them all down and think about how I can teach those. And um, I think that's, that's something that I can't do. I'm really bad at uh, figuring out the basics to a point I, I guess I, I I figure out the basics for me and then immediately move on and forget what it was like to not know the basics. Yeah. And that's not that's not uncommon. I mean it's it's really it's really easy to do. Um but it's really just about like picturing your your audience. Um I think I heard somebody say like, you know, when you're writing um I think it might have even been my my publisher for my first book on expression engine, um the uh, pragmatic programmers, like take a, you know, a, a sticky note and write like who your, who your audience is, like one person, and then like stick it to your computer display. And so you're always reminded of like who you're talking to. And that makes sure that you're not like glossing over, you know, important details for someone that is, that is new at, at what they're doing. Um, and that's why writing a book is so incredibly difficult sometimes, especially tech books, because you have to be so verbose about what you're doing um, because the the person that's reading the book probably hasn't done this thing 500 times like you have. Well, I'm, I'm working on a book right now and I mentioned hashtags <laughs> and my, my uh, editor said, you can't just say hashtags because not right. everyone knows what a hashtag is. And that's the kind of thing that I just, you yeah, have to, yeah, you have to say these words that start with a pound sign that you may have seen on Twitter. Right, right, yeah. The first thing I ever um, wrote for a publisher was um, in, I think it was like 2005 or 2006, called The Business Podcasting Book. So this is like in the first wave of podcasting um, when nobody was making money at it or, or really doing anything of any success at it. This is before like Twit and 5x5 Five Five and all that. Right. Um, and it was, it was like a podcasting book, but for business people. So it's sort of like this, like, you know, this is how you take podcasting and, you know, use it in your business. And I was writing the technical chapters on that. And it was a lot of like, you know, over-defining things. And they'd be like, no, you really need to define this clear on this thing or this thing or this thing. And you're like, oh my goodness. <laughs> like, this is like, you know, insulting my intelligence. But like when you're teaching, you have to, it's not about you. It's not about like what you know or, or anything. You have to kind of set that aside and think about like, what is this, like, what is the position that this person is that's going to be reading this book? Um, they probably don't know what a hashtag is. Um, they probably don't know you know, what an RSS feed is. I think there was like a whole chapter on RSS in this book just to explain it. Uh, yeah. See, I, I'm impressed that you 
can pull that off. Where do you, th- I didn't warn you, I was going to ask this, but you did mention that you were willing to talk about it earlier on. Mm-hmm. Um, you, this, your, your, your Majingo website is chock full of really, uh, helpful videos that people, I mean, people come back for more. Where do you find the patience and motivation to just continually pump these out? <laughs> um, that patience motivation is less of a problem now. Um, the, the problem that I have now is time, but, um, man, I just get an, I, I have like a running list of, of ideas that um, of topics. And because I'm so curious about different things, I, like I have like really obscure things that I want to do a, a, a course on, but then I think like, ah, I was like, this is like a good return on like my time, you know, to actually do this. But it's just a matter of just, you know, um, uh, I come up with an idea and then I, if, if it's something I can act on, I just do an outline and then I get really excited because I'm like, oh man, I'm, you know, like, like I see like the end, I see like my ability to like break this topic down and teach it. Um, a good example of like a pretty difficult topic to approach would be the, the video I did on Git. And one of the things I try to do is not like say, I'm going to teach everything about Git. You know, because that would be a really terrible uh, course. Um, I say, I'm going to teach, like I try to have like an angle, like, okay, what is this video going to be? Is it going to be the, like, Git for designers? Is it going to be, you know, uh, Git, you know, for advanced users? And I always said, well, I'm going to do like the basics. I just want just to lay the foundation to answer the questions that people have like here at work when they're first starting to use Git. Like, you know, what is it like? Why does it matter? And, um, and how can I get started using it? And so when I start like, you know, outlining this, I'll pop open like, you know, Omni Outliner and start outlining. And I get really excited because I'm like, oh yeah, I can cover this. And that leads into this. And of course with Omni Outliner, you can reorder things left and right. And, um, and I see like the ending. I say, oh, well now we have like, you know, I've sort of have this nice flow all the way from, you know, introduction to, to what Git is all the way down to, uh, using a, you know, covering like remote repositories and and pushing to a remote repository, um, and they sort of have like the whole thing. And they and when when I'm done, they have like a, a just a complete bit of understanding of Git, and they have a like a, a foothold enough to sort of help pull themselves up um, in the next steps. You know, it's not everything they need to know, but it's enough for them to know what they what they need to go explore next. And that's really um, sort of. That's what motivates me. It's it's kind of exciting to put together um, courses like this. You know, you, I get all I get all fired up about it sometimes um, because it's you know, and I'll be I get into like real sort of I'm in one right now. I'm, I'm redoing the craft uh, CMS course that I did, and uh, I'll just be you know like up late you know working trying to get like you know the editing done or. Um, I'm doing video, live video intros now. So I have like a little studio set up in my home office. Um, and uh, uh, and I'll be like writing like a script, trying to like tweak the script and, and doing like test runs. You know, you can like hear my daughter talking in the background during my test runs, you know, just trying to like do all the prep so I can figure the best way of, um, of recording these things. And uh, it's just, it's a ton of fun for me. It started as like a really like small side project and it sort of turned into something that has become, uh, 
a, a much bigger demand on my time than I ever imagined. That's at least your time is going to something that you've figured out how to make money on. I, yeah. I, I, I got to tell you this weekend, I had a lot of plans and I don't, I can't outline. I use mind maps. They work way better for me. So I was on mindmeister.com mm-hmm. and I was, I was outlining ideas for these projects that I could actually make money on. And, um, I, I have this thing about keeping backups of everything in plain text. So I had a script that I could download. Uh, I could just run a command and it would download a MindMeister mind map and save it as Markdown. And then I decided I just wanted it to run automatically and keep a constant archive of all of my MindMeister maps That's in cool. NVLT. So guess what I spent Sunday doing? <laughs> Writing that script. Guess who's going to pay me for it? I don't know who. Me? Nobody. Nobody. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, you know, so there's the, the flip side to this. I mean, I, I get what you're saying. And um, part of my workflow is is mind mapping. I kind of jump between like tools. I basically just, whatever is the, the path of least yeah, resistance, yeah. when I have the idea, I'm just like, I'm just going to do this. And Well, and, brainstorming can't be strictly. Yeah. Otherwise, I'm just tool. like, you know, I have like a notebook and I'll just do, I'll just do whatever. For a long time, I would, I'd feel guilty for not using like, you know, the workflow that I set up for myself. And I was like, this is kind of dumb. Um, having guilt about a workflow. Yeah, yeah, uh, I learned a lot that. more important things to have guilt about than that. Uh, but what I found is that, like, the flip side to like you know not working, like, like sort of working on things that aren't going to like make you money, is that like when you start working on things that will make you money, the pressure and the weight of that can be like suffocating. I'm sometimes. so glad to hear you say that. That's um, as soon as it becomes a job, it's I, I lose. Some yeah. kind of motivation. And it's not like, it's not, it's not just about money either. It's about like, it's like, um, you, you, you want to sustain the life of this thing that you created. Right. And you know that if, if like I stop creating courses for Majingo, eventually there will be no more sales, right? right? Things will stop because the courses will be out of date or, you know, there would be no reason for me to promote it anymore because I don't have anything new. Yeah. Um, and that's like, that can become a huge burden. Like, you're just like, man, I have to like, like I have this thing that I created and now I have like, you know, whatever, 20 courses, whatever is in the library and people are buying them. Cool. Um, but you know, like I need to keep, keep this thing going now. And you start to feel this obligation. This is why you see people burn out on side projects and, um, and quit on side projects or just let them, just let them linger and die off because, it's a huge, huge burden to to sort of maintain this, and it's it's kind of crazy to to feel that way. Um, and I didn't for a long time until uh, until I started doing it more. Then I was like, man, this is like I need to like think about you know how how I'm approaching this because I can't I can't have this be like a point of stress in my life. Yeah, yeah. I think um, I still carry some guilt about applications I let die five years ago yeah and i mean yeah you have to kind of uh i'm tar i mean i guess you know i'm charging for these so i have a certain there's a certain expectation that i'm keeping them up to date well that's Um, the other half of it is responsibility you know once you start getting paid you have way more um responsibility to to your users and i think that adds pressure and pressure for some of us can make a shutdown. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah, I'll get. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm the same way, and I will 
kind of go into like a a mode where I'm seeking out like something completely different. Um, uh, I, I typically read a lot <laughs> when that happens um, because reading helps sort of like jog something in my head to kind of get me back in the groove again. Um, like reading about unrelated things. Yeah, it could yeah. be anything. Um, I, I found like going to movies. Yeah. Is what, like I need something to just completely take my mind off it and the problems and pressures will solve themselves. Yeah, and actually uh, movies, um, uh, except for, I mean, it has to be a, a certain kind of movie, but I get movies inspire me, not anything directly in the movie, but when I think about, and again, sort of a, like curiosity of how things work, when I when I watch a movie and think about like what went into create the movie and the script and the production and all that stuff, and then it, it actually inspires me then to get back and in, like into creating things again um, because it can be... You know, it can be it can be suffocating sometimes, and that's yeah. sort of like the everyone's like, oh, I wish I had a a side gig that you know I can make money off of. And it's like it's like that's cool, but if you can keep it at a certain level where there's there's no pressure, then it's great. But once you get beyond that, it can be. Um, I mean, it sucks. I feel like a kind of a jerk for saying it, but it it can be like a lot of pressure. Wait, I I I was on a podcast the other day where I I was almost antagonized into admitting that. I feel this moral obligation to respond to emails no matter how uh, time-intensive versus uh, profit, how bad that ratio is. Yeah. And and how much that drains me. And yeah, I did feel like a jerk for feeling that. But it's, I think it's true. No, it is. I mean, it's, it's, uh, uh, you can't always, I mean, not everybody is really good at controlling like what, how things make them feel. And, you know, um, some people are really good at it or say they are. And some people can let things kind of roll off their back. Um, but, uh, I can be really, can they, I don't know. I mean, they say they can, but in my experience, it's been, maybe I'm just that person that can't, but, uh, but you know, I can be pretty, I get pretty in, you know, involved and, you know, intense about whatever projects I'm undertaking. Yeah. Um, and I guess I would, I guess I'd rather have that than just be apathetic about everything. Um, you know? Well, yeah. I mean, so. you wouldn't, you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have built what you have if you were apathetic about anything. It's true. Well, I have so many questions for you. All right. But, uh, but I'm going to do a sponsor break real quick. Perfect. And, uh, and we might talk about something unrelated it'll be a surprise good our first sponsor today is shopify a hosted e-commerce solution that allows you to set up and run your own online store in minutes pick a template add your products pick your payment processor this is like a tongue twister uh from paypal to stripe to authorize.net and ship your stuff with just a few clicks with shopify it's easy to sell online and there's no software to download host upgrade or maintain Pick from over 100 professionally designed e-commerce templates, or you can create your own with full control over HTML and CSS. There are no bandwidth limits and no need to worry about scaling when your store becomes popular. Every Shopify store is level 1 PCI DSS compliant and totally secure. Shopify just announced their Shopify POS. It's an iPad application that lets you sell your Shopify store's products in a physical retail setting. It's quick and easy. You just browse your store's catalog, pick a customer's product, swipe their credit card, and then print the receipt or send it through email. 
You can automatically sync products and orders, and there's only one dashboard to manage all your retail and online stores. Get the Shopify POS hardware, which includes a credit card reader, cash drawer, iPad stand, and a receipt printer. And if you order online, uh, shipping is free. Visit shopify.com slash 5x5 and you'll get three months for free. Check them out today. All you need is something to sell. So, how do you feel about, say, Bruce Springsteen? <laughs> well, uh, I like... I like Bruce Springsteen. Actually, I'm from the same hometown as Bruce. Um, Freehold, New Jersey. Yeah, I thought you were from North Carolina. What? No, I, I lived in North Carolina for 10 years. Um, uh, so I've lived in... What, you claim Jersey as home? I lived there until I was 19. Okay. So I, wow. I was born there, left there when I went to college, I moved to Tennessee. And then I lived in North Carolina after that um, with some Germany in between. Uh, and I was in North Carolina for 10 years and now I'm here in Austin, Texas, but I, yeah, I grew up in, in central Jersey, um, sort of, you know, main claim to fame and was, was Bruce Springsteen. That's, you know, my hometown. That's where, uh, that's where I grew up. So I, I actually wasn't always like a huge Springsteen fan. You know, I'm, I was born in 75. So, you know, when I was too young to know Springsteen in his early days, um, and just old enough to know Springsteen in like 84 when Born in the USA came out. Right. And, and all spring, I mean, all Springsteen fans like Born in the USA. There's, um, there's a lot of good tunes there. A lot of stuff that if you strip down the, the 80s E Street production of that album, some amazing songs. But it's not, you know, as the first sort of big introduction to Springsteen, it didn't really make me a gigantic fan. Yeah. But I, as I was older, I started exploring... Uh, more of his stuff in in college. Um, some of my my roommates were huge Springsteen fans. They were from Tennessee, and and I was like, man, I love Springsteen. I can't believe you're from there. And so we listened to Springsteen, and they kind of uh, introduced me to, to looking at his music in a different light. And I just got just kind of caught the bug. And um, I've only seen him three times. Only um, three times. Yeah, uh, three times. All in North Carolina. I suppose for a Jersey native, that's not very many. No, I mean, yeah, because, you know, when he goes and plays on tour and he plays, like, um, the Meadowlands, you know, I don't even know what it's called anymore, the, the where the, the Giants play. I don't, even, I don't know if that's, that even exists anymore. I've, I haven't lived in New Jersey in so long, <laughs> like 20 years. Um, but he go play, or, like, Madison Square Garden, and they literally do, like, four or five nights in a row and sell out every single one. Um, so it's, you know, I have never seen him in that, but I've seen him three times, uh, once with the entire E Street Band. The second time was after, um, uh, oh man, uh, my, my memory is failing me. Uh, after Danny, uh, uh, Danny Federici died, um, he was the first E Street member to go. Um, and then the, uh, I don't know, I saw him twice, I think, after Danny died. Uh, and then I had not seen them since Clarence Clemens died. Um, Springsteen doesn't really come to Texas. I think he was here last year for South by Southwest as like the keynote speaker and then did like a secret show somewhere. Um, but that was it. Uh, he doesn't really make it down to Austin. I like that your timeline is based on death. Yeah. Well, I mean, cause that's how I think about like, um, uh, maybe it's just part of like, you know, you know, I'm not old. I'm, I'm only 39, but like you start to see like your music heroes, you know, age significant. I mean, you start to see like your parents. Isn't that age, weird? Isn't right? that, start- and then you think about your parents watching, 
Yeah. Like the, the artists you consider retro, you think about that, that transition from seeing them in their youth to watching them get old and die. Right. And, you know, and then you begin to understand your parents' taste in music and, and why they don't like your music and right. this like emotional attachment to things that, uh, it's, it's a weird. Yeah. Well, you, like you start to see like the, the stuff that has always been there in your life, like you start to see it age and that, mm-hmm. and that's kind of weird. And so like you start to like with bands, like, you know, the E street band, it's, it's definitely now about like, you know, how long are they going to be touring? Like I need to go see them before they stop or before someone else goes. Clarence was a big deal. I mean, he's sort of like, you know, a big fixture in, in the, in the band. And, and like, they had a whole, like, um, uh, the, the, the E street shuffle song. It was sort of like their introduction song where Bruce introduced the whole band. And there's that one line, you know, uh, when the big man joined the band and that's sort of when he, you know, Clarence was always introduced last and the place would like, you know, the whole place would go wild and he would bust out into his, uh, his saxophone part and stuff. And so he sort of was like the, like that was sort of like the, the peak of the show and it was all revolving around the saxophone player um, or the horn player. And, and so like, you know, you start to see like these bands, like, you know, change in front of you or these musicians change in front of you. Um, but another one I've seen, which was Dylan, I've seen Dylan play live which is sort of like, you know, kind of like checklist of like people you want to see before they go. Um, and, uh, and I'm just, you know, trying to, trying to see as many people as I can. But Springsteen, I've seen three times. I'm, I'm content with that. There's only one regret that I have about Springsteen Live. And uh, when I was in college in Tennessee, he was on tour. I, don't, I, actually, I actually think I might have dropped out of college um, at that point. Um, but he was on tour for uh, the Ghost of Tom Joad album, which is uh, one of my favorite Springsteen albums. This is when he had sort of bailed on the E Street Band, was doing his own thing. Um, and uh, he was doing acoustic tour around the country. He was just him and his guitar playing his Ghost of Tom Joad songs. Uh, and he was playing at the Ryman Auditorium in Nashville, Tennessee. And you know, you know the Ryman, right? I actually don't. Okay, so the Ryman Auditorium, it used to be where... Um, the Grand Old Opry took place. Oh, well, I've been there. Yeah, so I it's should like a, know that it will, it's like an old church pews. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, he was playing there, and I was either in college or a college dropout, but definitely like in like the delivering pizza days of my life, and sure. didn't didn't have like this sixty or seventy bucks to go see a show. And uh, that's sort of my biggest regret is I didn't scrape that money together to see Springsteen at sort of one of, for me, like one of the best venues for that type of show. I don't um, think I would ever pay six or seven. I guess I don't, I can love an artist to death, but to get, going to a live show is, is at least at my age now, is annoying enough to me <laughs> that if it costs 70 bucks, I would use that as an excuse to say, I love you, but no. Well, if it costs 70 bucks, they, there has to be seats. I have to be able to sit down. <laughs> Amen. Because my knees and my back will start to... Uh, guys, this is like grandpa's show. Um, but it's, you know, I'll go see, I'll go see some people. Um, but I mean, Springsteen shows, like you're talking minimum 100 bucks to get in the door now. Really? At a Springsteen show. Yeah, it's expensive. Yeah, I, I won't do that. But I will... But you, I mean, so it's worth it. I'll tell everybody that it is worth it. If you're remotely a fan of Springsteen and have not seen him, seeing him once... And I'm sorry to say that you've missed out sort of on the best because of the two musicians that are no longer there. Um, but seeing him once is is a great experience. 
um, the guy will play, or he did, um, will play like two and a half, three hours without a break. And, uh, and they just go, man. Okay, it's, so if anyone listening is working for uh, Springsteen's touring uh, uh, management, uh, give me a call. <laughs> that that's that's how I got to meet Leonard Cohen, and that was for me. Like I think I probably feel about Leonard Cohen the way you feel about Springsteen, and that was that was a momentous occasion in my life. But I Springsteen for me was uh, when when I was little. It was um, I should say when I was old enough to care about music and able to sneak some past my parents uh Springsteen was the guy dancing with uh monica from friends yeah like the courtney cox kind of breaking moment but yeah for dancing in the dark video right yeah. and I, d- I didn't like it at the time and i grew up and i always kind of felt like he was somewhere between my generation and my parents generation and and it was kind of just same old roots rock stuff and i never really gave it a chance and it was only about a year ago that I really dug back down to like Born to Run and uh, Darkness on the Edge of Town, yeah. and these these older ones that didn't have the the wall of sound kind of production that started with Born to Run. Yep, and it was it like it hit me like I listened to Thunder Road. Oh, I think man. I listened to Thunder Road probably at least once every two weeks. Minimum. Such a, th- yeah, it's uh, that is. That is one of the one of my favorite Springsteen songs. It's because a, it has the the line "You ain't a beauty, but hey, you're all right." Yep, yep. And that's that's it's perfect. So the first time I really connected with that song was when, and this kind of is sort of sort of shows like when I really really sort of got huge into Springsteen was when he did the MTV Plugged. So he was supposed to do like Unplugged, but he did Plugged. Okay. And this was when this is when he wasn't working with the this was in the nineties when he wasn't working with the E Street band. He kind of split off from them for a bit to explore some other stuff. So he had like a different band. This was like the human touch days where, you know, a lot of Springsteen fans are super critical of of, uh, of Lucky Town and Human Touch, those two albums that came out close together. Yeah. Um, but he did an acoustic version of Thunder Road. And he also did one, I think, um, back in the eighties too. But uh, it sort of like stripped down this really like you know, produce like classic E Street band sound into uh, an amazing ballad that that sort of brought the lyrics that you're talking about, you know, to the forefront. So that's a that's an amazing song. Uh, well, okay. The other one, the reason that I started digging uh, and and gaining this appreciation was actually uh, because I'm a huge Patti Smith fan. Uh, okay, yeah. And and she wrote uh, because the night with Springsteen. Well, and so he wrote it. I believe and, it was co-written. Well, I think they have co-writing credits. Okay, um, and and but, I, I don't. We'll have to we'll have to look it up after the show to see. What, either what way, the rest, either way. But, like, but I, I it think was, he wrote it and then and then gave it to her to record, and I think she changed it up a little bit, and yeah. then they got co-writing credits. But yeah, um, but yeah. So like, I I loved that song by her, and uh, and you know, it, it was one of my evenings where. I start researching mm-hmm. and we talked about this before the show where you, you go down these rabbit holes, just following links from one artist to it's their inspiration or a band they used to be in. And you start going down these trails and finding all kinds of new things. And that's, that's how I got into uh Springsteen to begin with, but it was uh, the cover of 
I'm on fire by the chromatics that sold me. That was yeah. when I, that was when it like clicked for me. Cause you need, you need a, a foundation to appreciate anything. You have to understand the context. Yep. And, and for me, like to, to appreciate an IPA beer, you need, you need a transition. I was really, I loved stouts. All I ever drank was porters and stouts and IPAs tasted like something was wrong. <laughs> and then, and then Skunked beer. I think it's bells put out, um, something called two hearted ale, which is okay. like, it's like a, almost an IPA. And I loved it. And after I drank that for a while, then I tried an IPA and all of a sudden it made sense. It clicked. And that's the chromatics clicked Bruce Springsteen for me. Yeah. There's a, you could spend like a weekend researching and finding the best Springsteen covers out there. Because I assume I mean, you have. No, well, I've gotten, I've done some of that. Um, <laughs> I try to, I'll find myself like in an evening, um, typically, you know, trying to like avoid something else that I have to do. And I'll just be sitting there. Next thing I know, it'll be like one in the morning and I'll be about a hundred hours, you know, in the hole in iTunes or wherever. And I'll, I'll, you know, cause I get in this rabbit hole of like finding people that, you know, these musicians, one of the ones I did recently which I actually wrote about on my site is um, there's a musician. Um, uh, his name is Steve Goodman, and Steve Goodman wrote that song um, uh, "City of New Orleans," which a lot of people will know as from the Willie Nelson cover. Um, but uh, but he is part of like. So what happened was I was listening to some John Prine, and I then uh, was reading something about Roger Ebert. On his that Roger Ebert wrote, um, where he reviewed John Prine like back in 1970, um, and so Roger, you know, I don't know how many like Roger Ebert was like a a, a music writer before he started doing uh, I didn't know writing, that. writing about film in the Chicago area. So he's been like deeply rooted in Chicago um, for his whole adult life, and he uh, would was part of this uh, folk revival scene um, in the 70s. Um, and one of the people that he wrote about, I think he wrote actually like the first review ever of John Prine when John Prine was still literally like a postal worker and he would go and do open mics uh, at, at clubs in the evenings. And, and then finally started getting his own gig. So I was reading about this and then I started to like, there's other characters mentioned and one of them was Steve Goodman. So I, you know, next thing I know, I'm down the Steve Goodman hole and I'm on, you know, one of the great things about YouTube is that you can find all this stuff, yes. like live recordings and videos and you know all sorts of stuff and so i like i go down this steve goodman hole and steve goodman died like at like yeah i think he was like younger than me um of leukemia um but he he wrote like in in this scene um sort of like in these circles he's still considered like one of the best songwriters ever um he was on austin city limits and uh you know had sort of all the accolades of like a, a great songwriter um i can uh on my site, there's a, a post called Steve Goodman Train. I'm looking at it right now. Yeah. And so there's this great song called The 20th Century is Almost Over, which is like classic Steve Goodman. Like, you know, just, you know, he's like all over the place singing this song at Austin City Limits. Nice. And um, uh, he, um, 
so I, I would I would like sort of like find these people and and then go down that rabbit hole and start to learn more about them and they're connected you know of course to someone else and 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 you, next thing you know you're sort of building like this this you know constellation of of this one little area of the music world. Have um, you ever grabbed your significant other and tried to make them watch a YouTube video you found after going down one of these rabbit holes and you feel like you need to provide all the context <laughs> so you explain it in detail and by the time they watch it they don't care anymore? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think my wife probably she'd probably start off kind of not caring. Yeah, as much. My, mine too. She'd roll her eyes and be like, "Yeah, oh, she'd be like oh, whatever." And what are you doing? <laughs> and yeah, um, but the the only sort of like equivalent to this in in a different genre of music would be in jazz. Um, so we were talking about Ethan Marcotte earlier, and one of the things that um, he when we were talking about music one time, and he saying that one of the reasons that he liked jazz music so much is because he loved to be able to make the connections between the musicians in different bands. You listen, you know, you listen to a jazz album, you look, um, you know, you look at the, um, at the cover or at the back of it, you start to see who the musicians are and you then, you know, you can find those musicians or maybe were playing in this other band. Cause in the jazz world, they were, you know, sharing musicians between bands or bands would fall apart and reform in different, you know, versions and you can also sort of go from one music, musician to the next and sort of build this network of people um, and how they how they all tie together in the jazz world. I think it's, it's probably much easier to do because it's more incestuous. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I just you know I've sort of have gotten to to do that in in other you know music in like you know rock and and in folk music. Um, and I'm no like fan of like any one particular genre of music, but I just you know. I love finding out about like the most obscure person and like, like I think Steve Goodman isn't super obscure if you're into this type of music, but for most people don't know that he wrote that song and that he, um, and that he like was really so instrumental in that scene. A lot of people probably know John Prine, but they don't know that, you know, Steve Goodman was, was, you know, just as influential in that scene as John Prine was. This is awesome. We have to, we have to stop for a sponsor, but I could honestly do this for a really long time. We're gonna go. We're gonna go overtime today because you're very interesting to talk to. Um, but our second sponsor is HostGator.com, a premier web hosting provider. If you're looking to start a website, HostGator can help you get started with monthly subscription. I'm, I'm sorry, monthly hosting plans, one-click installs, and tons of other features that make getting your site up and running easy. If you're a more advanced user or a business, HostGator can take care of you with reseller plans, VPS, and dedicated servers. HostGator guarantees 99.9% uptime no matter your size or needs. If you're a WordPress user, you're going to love their one-click installs and optimized hosting platform. When you host with HostGator, you get unlimited disk space and bandwidth. They have free site builder tools that are super easy to use, but if you find yourself needing any help, they have 24-7 support to ensure that everything is running smoothly. So head on over to HostGator.com to learn more. And when you decide to purchase, don't forget to use the coupon code DANSENTME and get 30% off of everything at HostGator.com. Okay, so that's uh, we, we have like uh, five minutes to do top three picks. It'll take longer than that, but I'm gonna, I'll, I'll do mine without too much explanation so you can talk more about yours. So go, number one. Oh, do we have a time limit? Okay. No, I just try to keep the shows like an hour, okay. but I don't think anyone's going to. Write me emails if I go 15 right. minutes over. Um, I'm actually want to change one of my picks. I just did that too. All right. On the fly. Yeah. That's how we roll. All right. First one. 
is I'm doing ABC. I was telling you this in the pre-show. I'm going to do an app, a book, and then I'm cheating by calling it a CD. Uh, you called it a composition, which I think was also very clever. Uh, a collection of, of songs. Uh, the app I want to do is called Filmic Pro. F-I-L-M-I-C Pro. This is an iOS app. Um, and it is essentially a video camera app um, for your iPhone or iPad. And it allows you to have like a lot of customization over what you're recording. So unlike the, the built-in app, you know, you can, you know, selectively focus. And when you focus, it also does um, exposure based on that point as well. Um, this lets you do that and then lock it in. Um, it has an audio meter built in. It has a white balance as well. So you can white balance and then lock the white balance in. And so what I've been doing, I, was, I think I was saying earlier that uh, I'm going to do some live intros in new Majingo courses where it's kind of me, you know, standing up and sort of introducing everything to give it a little bit more, uh, a little more personality than just like a, a voice behind a screen. And, um, you know, I have a DSLR, but I was, I was kind of like, man, I bet I could do this with my iPhone. It's, you know, it's 1080 and uh, it, it probably looked good. It's going to be compressed down to a QuickTime file anyway. Um, you know, how, how, you know, how good does it really need to be? Right. So I, I found this app. Um, I think I found it on the Wistia forums or the Wist in a comment thread on Wistia or in a video by Wistia. If you guys haven't looked at Wistia, they're a video hosting service, kind of like Vimeo, uh, more geared towards marketing, but they, they have a bunch of really nice um, uh, how-to videos, um, really well-produced. And I found it there and I started playing with it and it was amazing because it's just me. So I have to kind of like set the white balance and set my focus and lock it in. I don't have like an assistant or anything to help me. Um, and I got a little glyph um, to attach to my tripod so I can have my phone up there. And uh, I set everything. I have like some studio lights and a, a, a background and, uh, and it works great. The video looks amazing. And, and you, from there you can like export out. Um, you can go into Vimeo or just export out to the camera roll, which is what I do. Um, and then I plug it into my Mac Pro and uh, pull it in, import it into Final Cut Pro X10, whatever it is. Um, and, uh, and just that's basically how I, I get my camera footage. Nice. So the really, way- really cool. Four ninety nine. It's like, you know, yeah. it's, and I spent a, more than that at Starbucks earlier. Totally. Um, I, I see this being all of the stuff that Apple knew they could do with the video app, but decided to strip out for simplicity. Right. And these guys brought it all back in. That's pretty cool. I actually yeah. used to buy probably a video camera every year. And yeah. I, used to, I used to shoot more video than I do now. But uh, I, I've had everything from huge like Sony like what were at the time cutting edge digital cameras to little uh, high res handhelds. And I don't use anything but my iPhone five anymore. And I have a glyph too. And, uh, and I still have good tripods from back in the day. Right. But it, yeah, the video is, it's better than m- cameras I had three, four years ago. Right. And the key is like proper lighting. Right. Which um, is and, the key to any good video, but right. And I, or photo and I don't, I don't use the built-in audio, so I have a um, a Zoom H4n, which is that handheld. Yeah, it does stereo recording. Has two XLR ja- uh, inputs, 
Um, so I record the audio into that and the video into the camera. And then when in Final Cut Pro 10, you can, it has this, you know, you don't have to use like clapboards anymore. It has this synchronized feature. You choose the clips, you hit synchronize and it, it does it for you. That's awesome. Yeah. Isn't that, Mark always talking about software that did that. No, I've forgotten. Did that he ever, does this, the synchronizing? Yeah. Didn't he put that out? Oh, I don't know. I should I should look that up because that would still be really handy. Um, cool. All right. So I just I'm I'm adding links for that and the glyph and the H4N and I'm on the ball today. <laughs> All right. So my first pick is going to be and you may or may not love this, but um, Ghost Lab. Have you seen it? No. Okay. So picture this: you have Safari, Chrome, Firefox, Opera and Internet Explorer running in a virtual machine open on your two 27-inch displays, okay? I have, I have seen this. Yep, go ahead. Okay, and then you load up the same site you're viewing there in your iPhone, your iPad, and say your Nexus, and they're on your desk. And then you uh, run out of screen space, so you go over to your other computer and you load up whatever browsers are left, you know? Like, oh, man some some obscure browsers on your secondary machine and then you start ghost lab and you connect them all to its server and you point ghost lab to whatever web page you want to test so now you have the same site showing up on as infinite number of different devices and when you scroll one they all scroll and you can position them in different ways when when you type in the search input on one Mm -hmm. it types on all of them and you hit enter and you can go to you can test the same things in every browser simultaneously you can even run like uh, uh iOS uh, the iPhone uh, simulator mm-hmm. on a computer and test the responsive designs without your phone but it also works with anything on your local network so this is a little bit more interactive than adobe edge inspect is yeah a little bit and it the edge inspect has- won't let you like you have to interact with each device right. individually. Right. And this lets you pop open uh, a WebKit inspector for any of the browsers, including the external mobile devices. So you can you can uh you can dig into each one and like as you move around through the DOM, it'll highlight on the screen of your remote device. And yeah. it's just it's it's it yeah, the the functionality has existed in many places. Um I used to use uh well, I still do um live reload and uh, yep. and grunt with live reload and i can emulate all of that in ghost lab ghost lab somehow disables live live reload's ability to to reload to refresh the page and the but but ghost lab can do that itself it can watch files and refresh all browsers on change the one thing the one thing it can't do is uh live css updates without refreshing the page which would be amazing yeah, I think on um, that's that's really cool. I like that you can that you can uh, when you're interacting with them, it, it does not all the devices. That's one of the sh- one of the shortcomings of Adobe Edge Inspect. So uh, we, with we Adobe up, Edge, can you can you click a link on one page and have multiple browsers follow that link? Yes. Okay. Well, not multiple browsers. So Adobe Edge Inspect is more about like device right. testing. So we have um, a lab here in Austin in the Happy Cog office and then an identical one in Philly. Um, so there's like an iMac 
And then there's a suite of devices and all the ones that support Adobe Edge Inspect, which would be Android devices and iOS devices. Windows devices do not. Um, you basically will load in Chrome. You load the site that you're, that you're doing QA on and it'll load on all those devices. And you can actually choose which device you want to do a, um, use the inspector on. And you can do the same thing where you can like, you know, you, you kind of uh, run your cursor over, yeah. over the code and it kind of highlights those um, in, on, on the device. So um, awesome. But it doesn't have that, that level of interactivity, which is great when you're doing like application testing because yeah, that's really exactly. the important part, right? Because then you have, you have to kind of, unless you're doing um, user testing, it's important to actually use the device. You know, but if right. you're actually just doing functional testing, it's important to be able to. to well, do and it that's that way. the beauty of it is you can grab the device and test out actions on that device, right. And see them mirrored on all the other devices at the same time too. And the great thing about um, not being so stuck in one way of doing things is that uh, you can use both. You can use like an Edge Inspect and Ghost, and just use them for what they're good at. Yeah, and, and that goes back to. Uh, the brainstorming conversation where I, 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 I got to a point in my life where I no longer felt like I needed to define one system and stick to it. Right. I got to a point where I said, screw it. I'm going to use whatever feels right at the time. And, and I think the same applies for all development tools and it's about everything. But anyway, yeah. Ghost lab. If you guys haven't tried it yet, uh, there's a free trial. So you should grab it for a happy cog and do a huge uh, room full of monitors. It's amazing. <laughs> um, that would be that would be really cool. All right. So you're number two. All right. Number two. So for the B is a book. And this one is a book that um, I recently got from our local library, which uh, I'm a big proponent of now of using the library, uh, is called The Behavior Gap. And it's by Carl Richards, and the uh, the the sort of the book subtitle is "Simple Ways to Stop Doing Dumb Things with Money." So this isn't really like a um, a financial book in the sense that like a Dave Ramsey type of financial book would be. It's more. It's actually more focused on investing, um, and and how basically we we'll, we'll talk about what the name means, the behavior gap. So he he sort of identified this phenomenon which is the, he calls it like the distance between what we should do and what we actually do. And he calls it the behavior gap. So things like um, when the stock market is soaring and it's really high and it's, there's, it's very exciting. Everybody's excited. They're like, oh, I'm going to go and buy this because it's like a great, you know, it's like really exciting. You want to be in where like the behavior gap there is that's actually the worst time to go jump in the stock market because that's where it's at the highest risk because it is so high. Um, Things like, for example, the housing market in Austin right now is crazy. Um, prices are soaring. Uh, there's a high demand and uh, not a lot of inventory. And everybody's excited about the market. So you, you have a lot of people like saying, I'm going to buy. And actually, this is actually the, probably like, you know, getting close to the worst time to buy because it's, uh, there's so much risk now. We're, you know, sort of, I wouldn't say it's a bubble. It's, I mean, Austin is growing, but prices are going up. And so you're paying more than you would have a year ago, which means that you're at a greater risk of, of being, you know, of, of losing money on your house in, you know, three or five years if, right. if things go down. So the, the, the behavior gap there is sort of making these emotional decisions about money things instead of, you know, actually thinking through it. And he, 
he goes through example after example. He kind of, he has these little drawings, um, you know, uh, little napkin drawings that he uses to explain all sorts of things. And it's a it's a really clever book. It's not a it's not a, a personal finance book that's like insulting or condescending. It's more just you know saying like take the emotion out of out of your financial decisions. Um, he has a great Twitter account. A lot of stuff he tweets is like, you know, how did your um, you know, you're probably wondering how your neighbor, you know, got that, you know, that nice new boat in the same month as they got that nice new car. Well, guess what? It doesn't matter to you how they got that. Um, you know, don't like let those types of emotions about what other people are doing influence you. Don't live, you know, your financial life based on your perception of that other person's financial life because you don't know any of the detail about what that person is doing, um, you know, good and bad. Uh, and so that's sort of like his, his thing is to sort of remove the emotion out of money. Interesting. Uh, a great, I'm not big into financial books at all. Um, I don't, I'm not really like a proponent of any financial like way of life. Uh, but uh, I, I found it to be a really, really fascinating book, especially if you're new to maybe like um, financial planning for like retirement and things like that. Um, or if you're thinking about getting in the stock market just with a little bit of play money. Wow, uh, that's exactly what I'm doing right now. Yeah, I so, just I just bought my first stocks like last month. I hope you uh, I hope you didn't buy with emotion. I I bought with um, uh, flippant regard for reality <laughs> or sanity. Does that mean you bought Apple? No, I just I I looked at like uh, an index and just like closed my eyes and pointed. No, I'm just kidding. I didn't do that. Um, but. No, I, 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 for me, there's not a lot of emotion in it. But then again, there's not a lot of, I've never cared about money. Money doesn't make me happy unless there's enough of it to make me comfortable so that I can do things that make me happy. So that's the only yeah. impetus I have. And there's actually a study done on that where I think they said that, um, I think he, he mentioned it in the book, but I had read about it previously, uh, where I think it's like, you know, seventy five thousand U.S. dollars per year. Yeah. Once you hit that, your happiness plateaus. I believe that. Leading up to that, you gain happiness as you because that money buys you certain you know uh, things in life. You you know that that you might need or want to to feel happy, like a you know a house or a you know or a car that you know um, that you like or that you know runs regularly and doesn't like, break down. Like an Audi TT. Yeah, I don't know, but that's what I just got because. I, I passed the plateau. You passed the plateau, but uh, but and then after that, you're actually happiness plateaus. And what they say, the reason that that happens is because um, you no longer are using money to satisfy like your emotional needs for happiness. You actually are starting to then like dig deeper into like like why like what makes you happy. And so it's no longer about like trying to you know I'm sure everybody's different, but you're you're actually trying to find like real reasons or find like real, you know, ways to be happy beyond just the money thing. So as people's incomes go up, it, they, they aren't actually any happier. Well, I'm, I, this might be, might be a book I actually read. We'll Give see. it a shot. Get it from the library. <laughs> I don't even know if we have a library. I haven't been there <laughs> since middle school. Um, all right. Well, that's, that's awesome. Um, my second pick is Fantastic L2 for iPad. Came out recently. If you yeah. like if you like Fantastic L, the iPad version is like a complete rethink of no, I shouldn't say complete, 
but it's a reconsideration of the layout, the design, and the usability. They didn't just blow up the iPhone version. They actually made something that's really gesture-based and really easy to navigate. You can swipe in from like the right edge and get to your uh, search panel, swipe in from the left edge, and you get like uh, your reminders lists, which all integrate into your calendar, and you can create reminders and events with natural language. Uh, and you can just tap a day in the calendar, hold it for a second, and then turn on dictation and say, uh, lunch with mom at noon. Mm. And it'll create that event on that date with reminders, and you're good to go. You can even set up repeating events with natural language, and assuming your device supports it, dictation. There. I made that well, fast. Do you, do, you, um, do you find that you use your iPad a lot for calendar stuff? Uh, I, I use it for reviewing calendar stuff. Okay. It's great in the morning when I'm looking for an overview of my day. Right. I don't use it as much as my phone for creating events. Uh, interesting. I don't use, okay, I use, I use Fantastical on my phone. Like it's the first thing I look at in the morning. So I kind of know like what my day is. Yeah. Um, I don't actually create events on my phone at all. Really? Um, well, so for work, we use Google, the whole Google business apps. Yeah. And the way we have it set up with like reserving rooms, like, like meeting rooms and stuff like that. It really, it's you like the web, interface. the web interface. Yeah. yeah. So I don't really create any like personal stuff I'll create on my Mac in Fantastical. Um, but the phone, I really use Fantastical just for like, you know, it's in the dock and it's just, I just tap it with my thumb and open it up and I can just get a quick overview of, of my day or, or, you know, throughout the day I look at it. If I'm out to lunch, I always, you know, tap on it to see, you know, when I need to be back. Yeah. That's cool. I haven't I haven't gotten the iPad app yet. Well, and that's the the iPad app is like I said, it's great for exploring your calendar too. Like to see what's what's coming up. The search is amazing. Like you can find any event at any point in time that you ever entered quickly and easily. Mm. It's pretty cool. Um I if you if you want to uh Flexibits gave me 10 copies of it to give away on my blog. So I'll link that in the show notes. It, the giveaway runs until Thursday. So if you want to chance it, one of these 10 free copies. Very cool. It, and they just doubled it, right? What they were giving away? Yeah. Um, they originally, uh, or, or the intro price on it is going to be, or it is $9.99, but it's going to go up to $15 for an iPad app, for an iPad calendar, which is, I, I think, an experiment in uh, reviving the price point on the App Store. <laughs> so I, I'm curious to see how that goes, but uh, but right now you can grab it for ten bucks. Very cool. All right, you are on number three, right? Yeah, yeah. C, C. So um, I, I changed. I, I called an audible, and I changed. Originally, I wanted to talk about um, the most recent Superchunk album called "I Hate Music," um, and Superchunk. They're you know the. Two people from Superchunk, um, they founded Merge Records, which was founded in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, which is where I went to grad school and sort of, you know, have a like a 10-year a connection to North Carolina. So it's there's a lot of history there. But I'm sure a lot of people heard of Superchunk. It's a great album. Check it out. But I want to talk about an album that maybe you haven't heard of that is also from a state I lived in from the South um, that sort of, it's one of those albums where like I played it over and over and over again when it came out. It came out last year, last June. 
um, and it's called Southeastern, and it's by a guy named Jason Isbell. Um, or in his Alabama accent, he says Jason Isbell. Okay. Um, and uh, Jason used to play with the drive-by truckers. Oh, I like them. Yeah. A lot. Um, yeah. And he broke out on his own. Um, he lives in Nashville now. Um, I have strong ties to Nashville. I lived in Tennessee for years, went to undergrad there. And um, he uh, lives in Nashville and did this acoustic, well, it's not an acoustic album, but it's a lot of acoustic stuff uh, of his songs. Um, probably some of the best songwriting I've heard in a long time. It's that good. Uh, it's uh, There's some like electric guitar up-tempo stuff, but also... Um, some just stuff with just him as guitar. The whole the, the song that opens the album called it's called "Cover Me Up" uh, is him and and his guitar, and I think um, maybe a little bit of electric, but really like low key and uh, emphasis on lyrics. Um, he's very much one of those songwriters who like kind of like Springsteen, um, where he's writing. He's, it's not all about like it's not all um, autobiographical. He is writing as if he was another character yeah. a lot of times. And uh, what, there's probably a name for that. I don't know what it's called. I'm not a songwriter. Um, but he writes some amazing music that the songs are a lot of times. Um, I was listening to an interview again, one, another one of my deep dives into people where I, I kind of came across Jason Isbell. And, uh, you know, he'll, he'll take like different stories from his life or that he's heard and combine them into a single one. Um, my favorite song in the, um, on the whole album there, well, there's two favorites, but there's one called Elephant, which is about a, uh, it's kind of a, it's a sad ballad about a, a girl um, uh, dying of cancer. Um, and that's the one where he kind of took, a, it's kind of like a, a combination of different stories. It's not anybody that he knew or anything that he directly experienced. Sure. Um, and then the, actually my, my real favorite one is a song called uh, Flying Over Water. Um. And uh, I tend to latch on to like specific lyrics in songs. Um, and he opened the, the song opens up. And this is one of the reasons I like Bruce Springsteen so much because he has like a, he has like a phrase or a stanza that I think would, is, is just, you know, like genius lyrically. Not everything he does is that, but, but there are some. Um, but the one that I really like from Jason Isbell is uh, in Flying Over Orders is the opening uh, lyric. Um, uh, so I'm not going to, recite it here but you know listen to the song uh you can get it on um any of the streaming services yeah, i just found it on spotify yeah any of the streaming services that i don't use and uh, uh listen to to the whole album it's amazing listen to it through and through it's it takes me the reason one of the reasons i like it so much it took me back to sort of like my days of of living in tennessee and you know you kind of get nostalgic about stuff uh yeah and uh so uh it's a great it's a great album. Um, he, if you search for him, there's also Austin City Limits show with him, which is also amazing. Um, and, and apparently, uh, he was uh, recently on uh, Mark Maron's podcast. And he a, was. I didn't realize Mark Maron had a podcast. I'm going to listen to that, and uh, my first episode will be the one with this guy. Yeah, no, uh, he, um, he's he's really really good. So I like, uh, and he he sort of Jason Isbell sort of been through the um the life of an alcoholic and and now is you know uh uh recovering and um this was like his album of 
you know, of like sobriety. So it's a lot of like, um, a little bit of a feeling of like, you know, as a, a redemption album a little bit. Yeah. Um, those but it's time are, those are some the, of the best albums that artists do. Yeah. Not the first one, not the first one out of rehab, but the one where they've finally gotten grounded and decided to have a new outlook on life. Right. Those albums are always amazing. Almost yeah. always amazing. So this is, he has other, other stuff out there, but this is, uh, this was my first introduction to him. And, uh, it's sort of one of those things that I just kept playing over and over. Great album. Really awesome. Good. Awesome. All right. I just read the lyrics to the, to flying over water, by the way. Yeah. They're pretty cool. But my last pick is, um, it's chameleon SSD optimizer. It's uh it's a simple free utility that, uh, I should say it's kind of donation where, but, uh, it can, it enables trim on Apple branded discs and that increases durability and uh, reduces writing cycles. And basically it, it's, it's a good thing to do. As far as I know, I'm not an expert at this stuff, but, uh, my performance in battery life has improved, uh, uh, it, it, it enough to notice since running chameleon and it has a whole bunch of other little tools that it can, uh, it can improve your system by controlling the way that your system stores memory when it sleeps uh, and the way it, it restores it when it wakes up, things like that. Um, for, for $0, it's, it's worth checking out. Yeah. That's called, what's the, it, where do yeah. I search? For? Just chameleon. Uh, do chameleon SSD. You'll find it. Okay. Or chameleon trim. But yeah, I'll put that in the show notes too. It's at alessandroboschini.it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you didn't try to read that to me. <laughs> very cool alright well that's uh, that's the top three and that's episode 92 um, Ryan you can be found at uh, Ryan Ireland that's R-Y-A-N-I-R-E-L-A-N on Twitter and the same on app.net and if you add a .com to it that's your website Yep. and then all of the videos we've been talking about are at majingo.com M-I-J-I-N-G-O.com and uh, and I'll link Happy Cog too for anyone who wants to see what we're chatting about there. Anything Great. else you want me to mention? No, it's, okay. I think that's it, man. That Thank you. That's a pretty good list. Yeah. Um, and I am Brett Terpstra. I can be found on Twitter and App.net and Last.fm and GitHub and everywhere as TT Scoff and uh, and over at BrettTerpstra.com. And I uh, I thank you for being here, Ryan. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. It's uh, it's been enjoyable. Yeah, I could. We're at an hour and a half right now. I could I could do this for another half hour, maybe maybe longer, but we <laughs> won't. We won't. So thanks for showing up and thanks for chatting with me. And I hope everyone has a great week. Thanks for listening. <laughs>